morning in Galatians chapter 6 again. Continue our walk through the book of Galatians. We've got just a few more uh, weeks here and um, we'll be wrapping up the book. I was looking at the bulletin this morning and it looks like uh, the children are bailing out for the sermon, you know. Uh, I'm kind of feeling hurt by that a little bit. I don't know. Maybe I'll get over it. Um, Children come in and out for uh, children's church uh, during the time of the sermon and return during the uh, hymn before the sacrament. And you know, one of the reasons we do that is because we would like for our children to participate in as much of worship as possible and um, to um, uh, not, not stretch them beyond their abilities, uh, but uh, to give them an opportunity to worship with us. And one of the reasons we bring them back in before the sacrament is because uh, we really do believe um, in the doorpost command. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God says to uh, the Israelites that, that when your son asks you why these things are uh, as they are, that you ought to be able to give a reason, that you ought to be able to discuss those things with him, that we ought to teach our children those things. And so uh, as the uh, bread and wine is passed in a little while, uh, that's your opportunity to... Uh, answer those questions for your children. I think it's an important time, so uh, they'll be coming back in in just a few minutes. Let me ask you to take uh, your Bibles out and turn to Galatians chapter 6. And uh, this morning, I want to read our text uh, before we do anything else and uh, read uh, verses 6 to 10. Uh, we're picking up in the middle of a thought here. You know what? Maybe I'll change my mind. Let's go, let's read verse 1 through verse 10 this morning so that we're not just picking up in the middle of the thought. We're going to begin our sermon in verse 6 today, but let me read uh, the first 10 verses and uh, please follow along as, as I do that this morning. Under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, the Apostle Paul penned these words. They are the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God and they are for us today. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then let his reason to boast, or then his reason to boast, will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, and for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. I ask you, O Holy Spirit, to take this portion of the Word, to take Galatians 6, 1 to 10, and particularly 6 to 10 this morning, and to apply it to our hearts and to our minds, and that we might walk out of this place today having bowed the knee to you, 
having worshipped you from the heart, having, having been taught by your Spirit from the Word, having seen a picture of Christ-likeness today. I pray that as we uh, partake of the sacrament in a little while, that we will indeed discern his body, Christ's body, rightly before you. Lord Jesus, um, if your spirit doesn't fill our hearts, then what happens here for the next few moments is only a, a beating of the air with words. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, would pour grace into our lives, and that we really and truly would worship you in spirit and in truth. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you have to know that the opening verse of our text this morning, Ephesians 6, uh, uh, 6 is one of the verses that most preachers don't like to talk about. Okay? It's one of those verses that, uh, that uh, we, just, uh, we just don't like to, to talk about. And if David and I did not preach uh, uh, sequential, expository sermons uh, through a book of the Bible like we do, um, that we would might just be willing to just skip over having to talk about what verse 6 has to say. It's not politics. It's not sex. It's how we share our earthly blessings with those who preach the word. It's gone from, from, from preaching to meddling. I mean, it's gone to, to messing with um, uh, where we, uh, what, how we give and what we give and how we support the ministries and the pastor of the church. This morning as we launch into that topic, let me just remind you where we are because I think context is really important here. As you look at Galatians chapter 6, Paul has, has really and truly gone from preaching to meddling. He's, he's begun to get very concrete in the way that he begins to apply the truths that he's talked about the gospel of grace. Last week I talked to you generally about, about what true spirituality looks like, and I gave you three basic ideas, uh, three basic evidences, I guess, uh, in the life of a person who's born again that they are genuinely spiritual. Uh, I spoke specifically about what it means to live in light of the grace of the gospel. That grace is, is the foundation that we ought to build our lives on. It, it is like the slab that we have poured for our homes that we begin to build our lives upon. Uh, living in grace is foundational to the rest of this passage. Living in grace is, is, is living a life that is no longer that's no longer horizontal, but is vertical. It's no longer a life that's transactional. It's, it's, it's living in a way that no longer says, you did this, so I'm going to respond that way. It's no longer living tit for tat. It's living, God's grace has been poured down to me in such an incredible way that my response to those around me is to respond as God would respond as God has responded to me. I've experienced God's mercy, and I didn't deserve it. Surely I can grant mercy and grace to those who wrong me or who do uh, things that, that make me uh, angry or uncomfortable or whatever. It, it is not a transactional kind of relationship. Grace is the idea and the reality that we've been given God's richest 
gift that he could give, the gift of his son, and that we've been given forgiveness and reconciliation at the expense of the perfect life, death, and substitution and satisfaction of the second Adam. That Jesus himself did what first Adam couldn't do. He lived a perfect life, and he bore your sin. There's a difference. We talked about how that difference works itself out. That, that uh, true spirituality is, is evidence in the way we bear each other's burdens, the way we care for one another. True spirituality is evidence in the fact that we understand that what we do, we do before an audience of one. We don't live to please other people. We live to please Lord Jesus. We live to live life in light of him. So we need to begin to pray that our lives would bring a smile to the face of God because of our faithful living in light of the fact that we are his and he is ours. That ought to be your your constant prayer. Those things form the foundation of true spirituality. And the Apostle Paul in verse 6 says, but wait, there's one more thing. I mean, that's just, you know, Paul was uh, before the uh, first uh, uh, infomercial uh, advertisement that uh, came out, you know. But wait, there's more. There's one more thing. There's one more thing to add to what we talked about last week, about building a superstructure on the foundation, on the slab of grace that God has built into our lives. And it's this topic that preachers don't like to talk about. It's the topic of of how we share our earthly blessings. So today, what does true spirituality look like? Oh, by the way, maybe this is just a freebie. This is just an extra thrown in, I don't know. Um, uh, but that was one of the things that I considered as I, as I was working with the text over the last few weeks. Um, I couldn't decide where the paragraph break really belonged in this text, okay? Now, I'm not a Greek scholar or anything like that. I mean, I, I can read uh, a little bit of Greek. Uh, when I study to prepare to preach, uh, I open my, uh, I have an interlinear uh, 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 Bible that I use, Uh, It's the ESV and the Greek text. And they literally run line by line parallel to one another, okay? So I can look at the Greek words and I can can follow how the thoughts are developed and that kind of thing. One of the things that uh, Greek does that makes um, us uncomfortable sometimes is Greek doesn't use like paragraphs. And so where do you break the paragraph? And you know, you've always heard, you've heard the story about the guy who put the paragraphs in the Bible. He, He did it on horseback. And uh, the horse stumbled, and that's why that one got marked, you know. This may have been one place where the horse stumbled. I'm not sure. But there are no spaces, there are no, there are no markers to show paragraphs in the Greek text. So does verse 6 go with verses 1 to 5? Or does verse 6 go with 7 like it's divided in my ESV? How, where does the break come? You know what? All that to say, it doesn't matter. Really doesn't matter. Paul's thought continues here. He, he, he's continuing what he has already started to develop. He says, he's talking about what spiritual people do. And he says, spiritual people, people who have been born again by Jesus Christ, people whose hearts have been changed by the gospel of grace, share with one another. 
And the kind of sharing that Paul mentions is primarily the kind that takes place between a preacher, between a pastor and his congregation. What does he say in verse 6? One who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. The minister and the church both have something to share. The one who stands behind the pulpit and the church both have something to share with one. The minister uh, shares good, solid teaching from the scriptures. Uh, the word Paul uses for teaching here is the word katecheo. Uh, uh, it's the word we get catechism from. Okay, I can't get my accent marks in the right places here. Um, it's the word we get catechism. It re- refers to a kind of oral instruction in biblical truth. So you think about it. Teaching the Word. That is as simple and as clear a job description for the gospel ministry as there is. Teaching the Word. One of the reasons that that David and I preach the way that we do is because we believe that is what God has called us to do. To teach the Word. We think that it is by the power of the Word that you as believers are built up and equipped and prepared for the work of ministry. We're called pastors and we're called ministers, but our job is to teach you and to prepare you for ministry. Our job is not to do it all. Our job is to teach. You know, these days, pastors, ministers, are tempted to perform a thousand other jobs. Tempted to be everything from salesmen to to businessmen, to musicians, to entertainers, to comedians, to janitors, and anything (laughs) anywhere in between. It happens all over the place. The center of a pastor's job, the true minister is nothing more and nothing less than a minister of the word. So how does that play itself out? How does that work? You know, several years ago, I was struggling because as your pastor, uh, I found myself running here and there, stretched to the max, trying to figure out uh, how I would get everything done and and how I would get a sermon prepared. And and I was wrestling with what my my schedule actually looked like on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I'm being honest with you. I'm being, I mean, I've just taken off the jacket and you're seeing the real me. It was a real struggle for me. It was a spiritual struggle for me because I know that God has called me to the ministry of the Word. And I wrestled with the Lord about it for a while, for a little while. I prayed and I thought and I I prayed some more and I read the Scriptures. And uh, I decided that I would go back and that I would read a couple of books that had been influential in my training and in my uh, seminary days. I read uh, The Reformed Pastor uh, by Richard Baxter and I read um, Feed My Sheep, and I forget the author's name on that. And uh, I read uh, another book uh, as well in that process of spiritual examination, just looking at my own life, thinking about my own ministry and how I could best serve New Presbyterian Church. As a result of that struggle, I reached the decision that God had called me to be a pastor, to be a preacher of the word, to be a teacher of the word, and that that needed to be my primary focus. That that needed to be the thing that consumed most of my time. 
and that I needed to begin to bear down on that and to begin to let other things go by the way. And you know what? That's been a healthy decision, not just for me, but for this body of believers. You guys have been incredible at picking up the responsibilities and the things that God has called us as a church to do and to be. Think about the living nativity and think about all the work that we did as a team to do that. How much of that did I actually do? Do you know? I was a cheerleader. I, I was, I was a, a point of organization and that kind of thing. But you guys did that. God used you in a mighty way and in a powerful way to do that. As we think about planning a church in just a, a, a few years, launching another congregation, how's God going to do that? He's going to do that through using your gifts and your abilities. My calling, David's calling, are to be preachers and teachers of the word. It's just that simple. That's where our focus needs to be. It's a full-time job. I mean, a minister is nothing less and nothing more than a minister of the word. The centerpiece of any gospel-oriented church has to be the exposition of Holy Scripture. All good things. A full-time job, and I'm to, I'm to share with you the richness of the Word of God, and the church is to share all good things. That, that refers to all kinds of goods, but especially to the material support that one needs to survive and thrive. Teaching the Bible is my livelihood, is David's livelihood, and so the Scriptures say that we ought to be paid for what we do. You know what? We are. And we're thankful for that. We're so thankful for New Hope and for your gracious and your generous provision for our families. You need to hear that. You are doing well there. We feel like God provides. You know, um, 1 Corinthians nine fourteen, The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. You know, the pagan religions charged the pagan um, pagan priest uh, charged fees for their services um, their their pagan priests were supposed to be um, uh, paid for everything that they did god's pastors are supported by the voluntary gifts of god's people luther put it this way when when all else fails go to luther that's that's my that's one of my theories uh, that i'm working off of these days luther says it is impossible that one man should be devoted to household duties uh, day and night for his support and at the same time pay attention to the study of sacred scripture as the teaching ministry requires i will tell you something preparing to preach if it's to be done as it should be is costly labor it's it's not a picnic you know david and i joke oh, our job is just to show up on sunday morning and talk a little bit and uh, then the rest of the week, we just go to lunch with people and hang out and, and that kind of thing. There's nothing to it. And anybody wants to uh, try it, we're welcome to, you're welcome to come alongside and try it out with us for a little while. Uh, our work is a lot more than that. I think a minister needs to be free to spend his time preparing to teach God's Word. It's, um, it, it's, it's much easier to do that when a pastor is not distracted by 
financial concerns. The PCA, um, the Presbyterian Church in America, puts it well when it instructs congregations to leave their ministers, and this is the quote from the Book of Church Order, and obviously that's true, um, that pastors ought to be free from worldly care and avocations. Now I'm going to say something that is pretty true. It's very easy for ministers to abuse the privilege of being paid to uh, open and study the Word. There's some men who who go to school and, and who enter the pastorate, and they do that to become wealthy. I think it's a foolish idea to begin with. Um, I think that not only are you uh, risking uh, uh, life and limb uh, in, in every way on this, in this world, I think that uh, to deceive God in that kind of way is a horrible thing. There are plenty of ministers' wives whose husbands are in the ministry for, uh, to, to provide for them, and, and sometimes they fleece their congregations. You know, you've seen the televangelist scandals and all that stuff back in the 80s and, and all that kind of stuff. There are plenty of pastors who have become lazy and who fail to give their congregations a good return on their investment. Greed and laziness are two of the deadliest vices for a minister. That's just the truth. When it comes to finances, it's also easy for churches to abuse their pastors. Sometimes some people use the purse strings to control the minister in the church. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen on, on both extremes. I had a man who was a multimillionaire who tried to control the church that I was serving through his financial abilities. And we just had to confront it and had to say, no, that's not the way it's going to be. I have had the other experience as well. I once interviewed with a church in another state, and it was many years ago. They wanted to call me as their pastor. And so we had gone up, and we had interviewed, and we had looked at things, and we looked at the area, and we'd said, yes, there's potential here for a church to grow and for a church to uh, a good place to serve and that kind of thing. We got all the way through the interview process. We got down to the point of talking about salary. And I was excited about the ministry opportunities there and was, was really seriously uh, open to uh, serving there. And uh, when we looked at the salary, the offer was so low that I asked them in all seriousness if this was compensation for a student or for a part-time pastor. They said, no, no, you know. I had four children at home at that point, too. You know, I, you know four little children, and uh, my expenses were only increasing. Their honest response was they wanted to keep their pastor poor so that he had to depend on God. I was like, um, I assured them that God was the only one that we depended on and that we were, if we were to be his instrument and that they were to be his instrument to provide for the pastor. And I pointed them to this passage. I remember that conversation because I will tell you, that is not a comfortable thing to have to say. That does, that's, not, that's not fun. Obviously, we didn't take the call. Other people sometimes forget the importance of a minister's preparation for preaching the word. You know, um, maybe 
I, I, who knows what was happening in Galatia, what was happening where Paul uh, is writing the Galatian churches. Paul has just finished explaining that everyone should carry his own load in verse 5. So maybe somebody in the Galatian churches was saying, well, all right, let's, let, let's see if the minister get, can get a real job for a change, and instead of uh, freeloading all the time, uh, he can uh, provide for himself. You know, Paul was a tent maker. Why can't the pastor do that? Well, that's not what God called him to do. So there is the most uncomfortable passage in the book of Galatians for a pastor to talk about. And I want to say something again. I commend you, New Hope, for the way you provide for David and for myself. I say that in all honesty, with all sincerity, you guys provide for us, and we thank you for that. We're appreciative of that. A spiritual person knows how to share. To share with others, and especially to share with the ministry of the church. Well, let's look at the next section in Galatians 6. Maybe the paragraph should have come at verse 7. I don't know. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will reap or will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So what's this principle? What does it mean? How does, it, how does this principle help us bear fruit? In its context, verse 7 is, is the metaphor of sowing is referring to our behavior, okay? It's referring to the way we, we act. To sow to the flesh is to indulge in sinful human nature. So like Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, 3, uh, that, that to fulfill uh, the sinful desires of the flesh and the mind is to sow to the flesh. So is, to, is, is the way that Paul is using those words. Those who sow to the flesh are motivated by their thoughts and by their actions, by indwelling sin, even though they might profess to be Christians. The evidence of the works of the flesh that are described in Galatians chapter 5, verses uh, 19 to 21, um, Paul reminds us that there's no amount of professed religious um, action and, and uh, the profession, just, there's, no, there's no lip service, um, if it's just lip service, that it's not genuine. Look at the deeds of the flesh. Now, the works of the, in chapter 5, the works of the flesh are evident, verse 19. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In its context, Galatians chapter 6 is saying God is not going to be mocked. If that's the way you live, God is not going to be mocked by that. Our sinful fruit betrays the unregenerate nature that resides in our heart. God's not deceived when someone like that claims to be one of his children. It's so basic. It's so elementary. But we, we're so easy at being self-deluded. You know... False professions of faith in Christ is an offense to holy God. It is an offense to God. 
It is something God will not tolerate. It's, it's a kind of mockery that's really the worst kind of mockery you can imagine. Those whose, genuine, whose, whose, whose discipleship is not genuine will reap the whirlwind, the tornado of God's judgment. That's what Paul says here in our text. It's clear Paul's not just making a general point here. He's addressing particular problems in the Galatian church. You see, there were two problems in the Galatian church. You remember what we've talked about over the past months? There was the problem of the legalist. The legalist was like, you've got to do these things to be right. You've got to do these things to, to be accepted by God. You've got to do these things. You've got to earn your righteousness. And then there, on the other hand, there were the libertines, the, the people who said, oh, we're free in Christ, and we can do whatever we want, and we can live any way we want to, and, and our freedom doesn't hinder us, and you know we don't have to do these things. They're both outwardly a little different, but honestly, the libertine and the legalist, they're basically the same inwardly. They both are following the flesh, not the spirit. And that's what Paul's driving at here. What's the answer to that problem? Look at the end of verse 8. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Sowing means living, acting, behaving. If our actions arise from the leading of God's Holy Spirit, then we're proven to be God's children. If, if our actions uh, arise out of the Spirit, then, then our faith is, is proven. For as many as led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Romans eight fourteen, The works that we do don't give us everlasting life. Our good works don't merit us, don't earn us eternal life. They are only evidence of the fact that we've been born again. Your good works show that there's been a change in your heart, not that they merit righteousness before Christ. You can't earn your way into heaven. How many times can I say it? How do you say it in a different way so people can hear it? You can't be good enough to be righteous before God. You've got to rest in Christ's righteousness and His grace alone. You know, so many times people... make a, a, a profession of faith. They say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I trusted Jesus when I was 14 years old and I walked down the aisle or I was baptized in this Baptist church and they immersed me there, you know, so I was covered with the water, you know. And they, I did this, I did that. I see that hand. I walked that aisle. Just pray this prayer. Just submit to this baptism. And it's not a changed heart. And so they have this profession that they've made, but it doesn't impact, impact the way they live day to day. God's Spirit changes our day-to-day -day living so that we are responding to God and to His grace because we love Him, not because we're trying to merit our eternal security. We've got to learn the difference between the two. The Bible requires evidence of the new birth, specifically that we would be found to be new creatures in Christ because the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Mere profession is not enough. True spirituality, 
True Christianity, true faith in Jesus, true eternal security is found in more than lip service. It's not just talking about it. It's not just giving a testimony. It's not just banking on the fact that your granddaddy taught Sunday school back in 1942 and that uh, you are part of his family. You know? Okay, here it is. You know, people have their own favorite life verses. I have a few favorites, and, and in all honesty, I think this next verse, verse 9, is probably the one that marks me in some of the most significant ways. Look at verse 9 with me. The Apostle Paul says this. I've memorized it in another version, so forgive me if I lapse into that later in a minute or two let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart the way i've memorized is let us not grow weary in well-doing um, for in due time we will reap if we do not lose heart In the context of Paul's pastoral words to the Galatian church, he says, spiritual fruit is both essential and inevitable. Spiritual fruit is essential and inevitable. It's inconceivable that believers will not persevere in good works. It's easy to get discouraged as a believer in Christ. It's easy to want to throw in the towel. It's easy to get tired. And, and Paul recognizes the human frailty of, of his hearers and of his readers in the church in Galatia. They were struggling. They were living out the Christian faith in, in, a, new, in a whole new environment. Christianity was brand new in their day. And they were facing the pagan religions and all the cults and everything else around them. And it was hard. To be a believer in their day. And he wanted to encourage them not to throw in the towel. Spiritual growth and maturity is hard and it's frustrating, and we're all prone to give up, to stop trying uh, at this matter of walking in the Spirit and producing His fruit. It's so much easier to let our sinful natures take over, to drift with uh, the tide of worldliness instead of swimming against it. It's hard to stand up for righteousness and truth, even in our society, isn't it? Look around you. If you're not radically different from the world around you, you need to question yourself. You need to think about your faith and who you are in Christ. You know, the psalmist says this in Psalm 73, We behold the ungodly who are always at ease. And are tempted to cry, I've cleansed my heart in vain. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Psalm 73, verses 12 and 14. We feel the sting, don't we? Living for Christ, it's not fair. It's hard. We stand up for principle. We have an objective truth that we want to honor. And it's not easy. Paul's words are an encouragement and a warning. 
We need to look beyond our present problems, Paul says. We need to, like the writer to Hebrews says, run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Psalm 126, verse 5 says this, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaths with him. You see, I think being obedient to Christ, I think being the, the, the person that God has called you to be for standing up for righteousness and for truth is not necessarily an easy thing. We battle against the sinfulness of our own hearts. We battle against uh, the reality of the opposition of Satan in this world. But God has guaranteed a harvest of joy for those who endure hardship and who refuse to give up. And that is a fantastic encouragement to me. I tell folks that I am not a, um, I'm not a sprinter. I never have been. I'm an endurance runner. I'm a plotter. I'm the one who will just keep on and keep on and keep on and keep on. You know what? I played college soccer because I could run for two 45-minute halves when I was an athlete. I wasn't a great basketball player because sprinting up and down the court was hard. But I could play soccer. I think that we need to have a soccer player's attitude about the Christian life. It's not just running up and down the court, but it's, it's a long haul. It's a marathon haul. It's a... It's a, it's a, it's, 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 it's hardship, and we need to refuse to give up. We need to plod along faithfully. So I'm a hunter. I have always thought, as a hunter, that putting in food plots to encourage game, uh, health, to, to provide for healthy game, is a good thing. So uh, I can't tell you how many times David and I have talked about putting in food plots. You know, we ought to put in shufa for uh, the turkeys so the turkeys have good nutrition and so that um, they have uh, the, the seeds and the things that they need to eat and so that we can attract turkeys and so that we can hold turkeys where we like to turkey hunt and so that they can reproduce and so that we can have a good harvest and that kind of thing. We've talked about putting in food plots for deer. And putting in food plots is not an easy thing to do. You know why putting in food plots is hard? Because typically when you are a hunter and you're putting in a food plot, where do you put a food plot? You put it in the woods. Well, the woods is a place where there's all kinds of undergrowth, where the ground has not been tilled before, where you've got to go in and clean out, and then you've got to go in and break the soil up, and then you've got to fertilize, and then you've got to plant the seed, and then you hope that the seed will germinate and grow and that it will be a good place. If you put it on the edge of a field, you've got the same issues. You're breaking new ground. A farmer will say sowing is hard work, especially when it's done by hand. Paul says sowing in the Spirit is hard work too, which is why we need the exhortation to not grow weary. It means not to grow faint. It means not to lose heart. Originally the term was, was used for something that had gone slack. Have you ever seen a bow when it's unstrung? 
That's what he's talking about. It's like an unstrung bow. The string's just hanging off the top of the bow. It's not really, it's not under tension. It's not under pressure. Paul says don't grow weary. Paul knew how easy it is to slack off in the Christian life. We as humans are weak. That's why it's hard for ministries to maintain vitality, spiritual vitality, why so many Christians who are active in ministry get burned out. People grow tired. People are tempted to sin. People experience opposition, sometimes from the very people they're trying to help and trying to work with. They get discouraged. They don't see results. Think about William Carey as a missionary. How long did he labor with no visible results, waiting for things to grow? You know, in an an accelerated culture like ours, people are used to having instant gratification. It's hard to wait. I'm the most impatient soul on the planet. I am constantly in conflict. I'm impatient, but I am a plotter. I long to see new hope grow. I long to see the gospel just just blossom in our community because it's changing hearts and lives. I, I am impatient about that, but I know that it takes day after day after day of faithful ministry of the word. But I'll tell you, it's hard. Sometimes it's just easy to give up, to throw in the towel. Sometimes the sheer immensity of human need is overwhelming. There are a lot of things a a Christian can do when they grow weary of doing good, though. I'm going to just tell you two things that, that I've found. Two things when you're ready to throw in the towel. One of them is just frankly, get physical, get physical rest. Just pull away. Get some rest. Take some time. Spiritual failure is often brought on by physical fatigue. You know that? The other thing is spiritual failure is sometimes brought on by trying to do things in our own strength. Sometimes physical fa- or spiritual failure is brought on by not resting in the Lord. Stop striving to minister in your own strength. Stop trying to do it on your own. Let the Lord bring the fruit. He's the one who's going to get the glory anyway. Let God work. I want to encourage you. Uh, The coming harvest is for those who don't give up. That part of the biblical, that's, that's, that's the biblical doctrine of perseverance. The perseverance of the saints. By the grace of God, we will persevere. The old saying is, is true, once saved, always saved. That, what Christians sometimes forget, though, is that once we're saved, we're always to serve. We're always to be found busy about the work of the Lord. We must continue to do good, but not because we're struggling to earn our salvation, but because we're grateful for the salvation that we've earned. One last point this morning. Look at verse 10. So, so the, the foundation that we're building on, the superstructure that we're building here, is that we would persevere, that we would, that we would not grow weary in well-doing, that we would indeed 
um, uh, so good works for the glory of God that we would care for one another, that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would uh, love the sinner. And um, then he says in verse 10, do good to everyone. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. How hard is that to understand? <laughs> How hard is that to live out? Oh, wait. I get it, but I don't get it. A Christian is a person who does all kinds of good for all kinds of people. And by doing good, we are imitating Christ and, and we bring honor to his name. We fulfill his eternal purposes. What does is, what is Christ, what, what does Paul say about us? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we have opportunity. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. As we have opportunity. You don't have to force it. You don't have to, you don't have to, to gin something up. You have to just step into the opportunities that God gives you to serve and to do good works. A self-centered Christian is kind of a contradiction in terms, isn't he? We need to be alert to the opportunities that God provides. Uh, we need to not be uh, so immersed in our own affairs that we fail to see the needs of those around us. We need to keep our eyes open. Paul singles out, he says, oh, we're to do good to everyone, but we're to do good especially here inside the walls, here inside the body of Christ. An old proverb says, charity begins at home. I think that would jive with Paul's point here. We're to care for the body. We're to care for one another. We're to care deeply for one another. We are indeed to love one another well not in word not in tongue but in deed and in truth we have a big calling church 2020 brings some big challenges to us as a believing church wanting to bring the gospel to bear in our community one of the ways we show grace the grace of the gospel to our community is by showing what true spirituality looks like. By the way we live, by the way we love, by the way we serve, and by the way we keep on, keeping on, doing the things that God has called us to do. Let's remember that this week especially. Let's pray. Father, I ask you this morning to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly that you would let this portion of the scriptures touch our hearts and our minds, that we would be like Jesus, that the world would see the gospel lived out in our lives as we live before them in the grace of Christ. So, Lord Jesus, be with us, I pray in his name. Amen.